morning. Good morning. Jacques and Kim, we're, we're so thankful that you were able to give our church a voice for the gospel and a presence for the gospel in uh, Chad. So we're very grateful, grateful for that privilege. Um, and I'd like to begin our time in the scriptures in prayer if we could. Lord, you are so kind to us that not only are we benefactors of the gospel, but we get to share it as well. And um, our church is so blessed that we've been able to do that in a place that almost all of us have never been uh, by Jacques and Kim and their family's faithfulness. Um, so thank you, Father, for um, letting us share in your goodness uh, from the other side. And we're, we're very thankful. And God, we are in great need today of your goodness again to come and help us with our fears, to free us from them as we trust in you. And so we ask that in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We are going to talk about those subjects today, about fear and about how we deal with them. And um, I ran across some interesting information on fears. There's a... Evidently, there's a website called phobialist.com. A fellow has organized more than 500 fears, which, if you would like, I have no idea why, why he did this, why you would want to do this, but you can buy a list of those fears in poster form. Um, they include things like this. Okay, you're going to either have to help me or... There we go. Thank you. Um, the first one is pelidophobia, which is the fear of bald people. It plagues many of you. Some, some it's just dawning on you these days. Um, the next one is, um, and you are probably, I'm going to try to sync this because it's not working, all right? Can you guys help me out and give me the next screen? You can't do it either, huh? There we go. Uh, Geniophobia, that is the fear of chins. I I have that fear. That's why I veil my chin like this. Um, The next one is uh, olophobia, and that is the fear of flutes. Prevalent one. And then there's the ever-dreaded entherophobia, which is the fear of mother-in-laws. Uh, yeah, we, we, we all face fears. They may not be on the phobia poster, um, but fear is very much a part of our lives. And how you deal with your fears is really the critical thing, I think, for us uh, today. And, and again, I'll share an example of, of one strategy for dealing with fears. There was a, a young bride who was extraordinarily nervous on her, the day before a wedding, and she went to speak with her pastor, and she said, I'm afraid I might not make it through the ceremony properly, she said. So the pastor, being an experienced uh, wedding officiant, gave her a very simple strategy. He said, uh, when you enter the church tomorrow and the processional begins, you'll be walking down the same aisle that you've walked down many times before as you entered the church. So just focus on the aisle. Focus on the aisle. And as you get to the front of the church, you'll see the altar where you and your family have worshipped for many years. Concentrate on that altar. 
And, and then when you're almost to the altar, you'll see your groom, the one you love. Concentrate on him. And so the bride was relieved. She felt like she had a strategy to deal with her fears. And so the next day as she walked down the aisle, she was just kind of going through this process to help her deal with her fears. And she's saying out loud as she walked down the aisle, aisle, alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. And that was just her mantra to get her past her fears and get her down the aisle. Um, We all have to deal with our fears. The way that we deal with them matters a great deal. Um, And today, we're going to watch the two main players in the book of 1 Samuel as they both deal, I believe, badly with their fears. Um, and if you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27 and 28, that's where we are in the book of, of 1 Samuel. King Saul, again, by way of review, is pursuing soon-to-be king David in order to kill David and prevent him from taking Saul's throne. Um, in spite of the fact that David, on a number of occasions has had Saul delivered to him at absolutely defenseless postures and has spared his life. Saul has nothing to fear from David, but his fear drives him to pursue David, um, seeking, relentlessly seeking to take his life. David has been chosen by God to be the next king of God's people. He is a man after God's own heart. That's his legacy. He's a man after God's own heart, usually. Not today. Not in the chapters that we're going to look at today, or chapter first chapter we're going to look at today, as I understand it. Um, today, David's fears push him away from God and leave him depending on his own schemes. In chapter 27, starting in verse 1, David thought to himself, One of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul, King Saul, who's pursuing him, right? The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left, went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. Now, David's, what's motivating David here is fear. He's afraid that Saul is going to catch him and take his life. And so his fears push him to the point where, once again, he is seeking refuge with the enemies of God. The enemies of God's people, most specifically, the Philistines. In running away from Saul, he runs to people who are God's people's enemies. And he seeks refuge with the enemies of God's people. Um, His fear of being captured by Saul is driving his decision making at this point in time. And it's contrary to everything David has been learning and practicing previously. Remember in the end of the previous chapter, David himself says, The Lord rewards 
Every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you, Saul, into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And David has been trusting God to spare his life, to deliver him from Saul. But that all kind of falls apart at this point. And he flees to another place. David's fears are now dominating the landscape for him in such a way that he can no longer see God. All he sees are his fears. Um, David, in this chapter, does not consult with God one time. In fact, God is not mentioned in this chapter one time. David no longer remembers what God has already done on his behalf. You know, David, what about Goliath? What about all those times when Saul tried to pin you to the wall with his spear and God spared your life? He's forgotten all of those things. He can no longer hear the promises that God has made to him. They they came through Jonathan, David's closest friend, Saul's own son. Back in chapter 23, Jonathan said, Don't be afraid, David. Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. David has forgotten all this assurance from his, that comes to him through his friend. And it came to him through Saul, too. In chapter 24, Saul says to David, I know that you, David, will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. And David's fears now have marginalized God. He's been pushed off to the side. He's no longer central to David's hopes or plans. So what David does is he seeks refuge in a place called Gath. Now Gath should sound familiar to you if you've been reading along in 1 Samuel with us. Um, That's Goliath's hometown, one of the principal cities of the Philistines. Um, David tried to hide here once before, and it didn't work out so great. They figured out who he was and uh, put him under house arrest, and David ended up acting insane and drooling all over himself and it, so that the king would dismiss him. It was not a happy, happy time in David's life. But here he is again, seeking refuge amongst the enemy of God in Goliath's hometown, whom David killed in a great rout of the Philistines in a place he narrowly escaped from before. See, again, as we saw a few chapters back, when fear dominates your thinking, it will marginalize God, make him small, and it will take you places you do not want to go. You will seek refuge in places you never thought you would if fear dominates your life. Charles Jenkins is a fellow who had been a good soldier in the military for nine years. He had a good conduct award and had been promoted to sergeant. But on January 5th, 1965, after 10 days of planning and 10 beers, he tied a white t-shirt to his rifle and defected to the North Koreans. He disappeared in that dark country for nearly 40 years until 2004 when he was able to leave North Korea to seek medical treatment in Japan. And in September, he turned himself into U.S. military authorities and at his court-martial, the frail, tearful 64-year-old soldier 
pleaded guilty to desertion. And he told the judge, I am in fact guilty. And when he was asked why he walked away from his unit and his country, he said he fled because he was afraid that he would be transferred to dangerous daytime patrols in a demilitarized zone between the two Koreas or worse, Vietnam. He wept as he described his depression, fear of death, and heavy drinking that led up to his desertion. He thought he'd be returned home, but instead he suffered under harsh conditions all his life. He says, I knew 100% what I was doing, but I did not know the consequences. And so, just like Jenkins and just like David, fear will take you places You don't want to go if you let it dominate the landscape of your life and marginalize God and make him small. David's fears take him to seek refuge amongst the enemies of God. I wonder this morning, if you're honest, where would you say your fears are taking you? See, your strategy for dealing with your fears will either center you on God or it will push him to the margins of your life where you'll find yourself acting first and praying later, maybe. Does your strategy to deal with your fear make God central or does it move him to the margins? In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 5, we're urged to make God central. It says, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. The invitation time and time again in the Bible is when you are afraid, trust in God. David himself says those very words in Psalm 56. He says, when I am afraid, I will trust in God. But all of that, he has forgotten at this point in time. Well, in verse 4, our story continues. And when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So David's plan worked. Because Saul is fearful, as we'll see, of the Philistines. He's not going into Philistine country after David. But there were, just like there were for Jenkins in Korea, unforeseen consequences. David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. And David lived in a Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. And then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or the Negev of Jeremiel or against the Negev of the Kenites. Okay, the, the picture is, David is telling Achish that he's raiding okay, against the people associated with Judah, the, God's people. But in reality, he's raiding against Judah's enemies. So he is deceiving Achish at this point in time blatantly about what he's doing. He said, um, 
He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people because he thinks he's raiding against the Israelites, right? That he will be my servant forever. David, again, his failure to consult God here, I believe, leads him to questionable areas. Um, he has to practice deception. I mean, flat, a year and a half, basically, of flat-out lies he has to live because of his schemes. Um, he... Um, ends up involved in questionable military practices at this point in time. Um, on the one hand, the people that he, were, that he was raiding against appeared to be the people that God had decreed back in the book of Deuteronomy to be wiped out. Deuteronomy says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and, and uh, drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. So on the one hand, what David is doing appears to be a fulfillment of what God has asked him to do. Except for the fact that he keeps the plunder for himself, the livestock he keeps. That was not part of the ban. They were to destroy everything amongst the people. It appears here that his motivation is not to honor God. It's to cover his backside so that no one will inform on him. That's why he's attacking and raiding and killing these people, men, women, and in all likelihood, children. Um, you know, to be involved in such sacred matters as David was, matters of life and death, with cloudy motives and partial obedience is not where David wants to be. See, fear can take you into gray areas really, really fast. Where things that used to be clear are no longer clear to you. There's a movie out that I've read about, uh, it's a few years old, um, called Nuremberg. It's based on the book by the same title by Joseph Persico, and it's about the Nuremberg trials in Germany in 45 and 46, where former Nazi leaders were tried as war criminals. And in a scene, um, Hans Frank, who is, attempt, is attempting to explain his actions to an army psychologist while he's on the stand, one of the Nazi leaders. And Frank explains, I turn my diaries over to the Americans voluntarily. You see, they prove I tried to resign as governor general of Poland. 
I did not approve of the persecution of the Jews. Anyone reading my diaries, they will know what was in my heart. They will understand that such things I wrote about Jews, the orders I signed, they were not sincere. I believe you, Frank, says the army psychologist. And yet, you did do those things. How do you explain it? I don't mean legally. I'm not a lawyer or a judge. I mean, how do you explain it to yourself? He says, I don't know. It's as though I'm two people. The Hans Frank you see here and the Hans Frank, the Nazi leader. I wonder how the other Frank could do such things. This Frank looks at that Frank and says, you're a terrible man. And then the psychologist says, and what does that Frank say back? And he says, that Frank says, I just wanted to keep my job. See, fear, fear of just something as small as a loss of a job took this man into areas of compromise that he never would have gone if fear had not been allowed to rule his life, marginalize God, and make him small. Well, these fearful decisions that David is making, I believe, um, come back on him. In the next chapter, chapter 28, in those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Okay? David's hiding out with the Philistines, remember? So Achish says to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. So now because of this deception that David is playing out here and seeking refuge with the enemies, now David is in a situation where he is going to have to fight against his own people, against his dear friend Jonathan, against the king, who, the anointed king whom he's sworn not to harm. David said, then you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. And Akish replied, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. And it just gets getting more and more complicated for David. David finds himself seeking refuge amongst his enemies, lying to Achish, conducting questionable raids, and now he finds himself required to ride into battle against his own people. And in a couple weeks, in chapter 30, we'll find that these very, um, these very raids he was conducting come back to inflict great suffering on his own family as they are taken captive by one of the very peoples that he was raiding against. See, everybody faces fear. How you deal with it matters a great deal. Don't do it in such a way that God becomes small and is marginalized. If you do, it'll take you places you don't want to go, that you never dreamed you could possibly go. Cast your cares on the Lord because He cares about you. Our second example of this whole fear-driven kind of stuff is is Saul himself. As we continue in chapter 28, Samuel was dead, the great prophet Samuel. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. And Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land, a very good thing that Saul had done. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Verse 
fear is dominating Saul's decision-making here. It's dominating his life. And it's about to take him unthinkable places, places that he himself as king had forbidden others to go. And his fear is exacerbated by his inability to hear from God at this point in his life. It says he inquired of the Lord in verse 6, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. So he's trying all these ways to try to hear from God, and he, he can't get an answer on what he's supposed to do. And it, that, it raises a problem. Why, why doesn't God answer Saul? Um, and what's going to become plain in our text is that God has rejected Saul at this point in time. And it appears as though Saul may be beyond a point of no return, kind of spiritually speaking here. He'll even be referred to as an enemy of God in a few minutes in our text. And that's a very scary thing, that there could be a place of no return in your sin where God gives someone over to the consequences of their choices. And and this echoes throughout the Bible. In Psalm 81, it says, God speaking, my people would not listen to me, Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. Again, it's not the place you want to end up. Left alone by God with just your own resources. And Saul, it appears, may be at that point, or it may also have to do with the manner in which and the way in which Saul is seeking God. Um, This whole incident is summarized real briefly in another book in the Old Testament, First Chronicles, chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, says Saul died, obviously it's ahead of our story a little bit, because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord, and as we're going to see in just a moment in our, in our text, he consulted a medium for guidance, uh, a seer, um, some people call her a witch, for guidance. And did not inquire of the Lord. So the Chronicles perspective is that what Saul did here was not genuinely inquiring of the Lord. And Saul has this pattern of seeking after God half-heartedly. In his own way. Um, You may remember back um, in chapter 13. he's, He's been given specific instructions by Samuel to wait Wait for Samuel to come and make an offering. Well, Saul waited for the appointed time, but then he got nervous and anxious and worried, and he decided to seek God in his own way. And he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he was done, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. And it was not a happy greeting. Samuel was not happy that Saul had disobeyed God. Even though he had offered an offering to God, he'd done it in an inappropriate, kind of Saul-driven way. And uh, again, in chapter 15, um, there had been great plunder taken, and Saul was not to keep any of it. He was to destroy it all, but they kept some. And Samuel says to him, why did you not obey the Lord, Saul? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. He was not supposed to do that. He was supposed to have destroyed him. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. And again, Saul is making up a new script to seek and honor God in ways different than what God had required of him. 
And Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And he says something very interesting. He says, Rebellion, Saul, your rebellion is like the sin of divination, of seeking medium, of seeking God through magic arts. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Saul has a pattern of seeking God in his own way, by his own rules, which from God's perspective is really not seeking God at all. God sets the path whereby we are to seek and find him. Do it yourselfers are failures spiritually. They will not find God. To find God, you must seek him on his terms. And Saul's pattern fell short of that, it would appear. Probably in this case as well. Now at this point, the story gets weird. Okay? It's just a little weird. And if you're a guest today, um, I apologize for one of the weirder passages of the Bible on the day that you chose to visit our church. But you need to know that we believe that even the parts that are a little strange are profitable and valuable for us. So we don't skip them. We boldly go where no man has gone before and we jump right in and trust that God has something valuable for us. And I think he does here as well. But it does get a little strange. Um, Back in chapter 28, Saul says to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, um, sometimes called a witch, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor. They said, so Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman, consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. She doesn't recognize him. He has cut off the mediums and spirits from the lands. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? She has more integrity at this point than Saul does. Saul swore to her, by the Lord, by Yahweh, by his name. As surely as Yahweh lives, you will not be punished for this. So we have the king of Israel swearing by the name of the Lord that he will protect a medium that he has outlawed from being in the, in the land according to God's uh, own word. And so everything is getting all twisted out of shape here. Um, and what he's asking her to do is to speak to the dead on his behalf. It's an art called necromancy. I know that word because when I was in college, I was an engineering student, and it was final exam time, and it was our senior year, and uh, I'm sitting at the dinner table in our little apartment with my buddies, and I am studying intensely. And at that point in time in our apartment, we had taken on a, a homeless man, that one of the guys found wandering around the campus. And we, he was living with us in our college apartment. And we got him in, and he was, not, um, he was not all there, I don't think. He, would, he just had a different perspective on things. And I remember I am studying, okay, intensely for this engineering exam that was about, about to do me in. And I am at the ninth hour studying hard, and in walks this fellow, um, and he says, uh, he walks up to me and he says, I just wanted to know, 
Now, the Lord laid on my heart that you're a necromancer. And he, he turned around and left the apartment. Now, I, I never heard the word. I had no idea what he said. So I had to stop studying my engineering, go look up the word in the dictionary. And I found out that I was someone who spoke to the dead. He just dropped this bomb on me, okay, in the middle of my... I was about to be dead amongst the dead if I didn't get, continue studying my engineering exam. But, um, and so that's my first exposure to necromancy, which is what's happening in, in this text right here. Um, which I'm not, by the way. I told you he wasn't right in the head. I'm not a necromancy. Um, the woman asked, okay, back in our story, whom shall I bring up for you? He says, bring up Samuel. The prophet saw love to ignore. Now he wants to hear from him. So when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice, and she said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. Saul. Now he's telling her, Don't be afraid. He's there terrified. This is just, everything is wrong about this. What do you see? And the woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like, Saul asked. He's an old man wearing a robe, and he's coming up, she said. And Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do, Samuel. And Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over, and now... Um, Samuel's spirit begins to prophesy. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. That is, they will die. And the Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines, and immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. Oh, what is going on here? You have the leader of God's people at a seance that he has forbidden anyone in his land to participate in, essentially. And it, it's not exactly clear what's going on here. I'll tell you what I think is clear in the text, and you can go scratch your head about it, okay? Something that shocked the medium or the witch is going on here. She did not expect to encounter Samuel and realize this is Saul. It scared her to death what happened there. Now, someone has suggested that all mediums and spiritual guides such as this are either fraudulent or demonic. And it is entirely possible that this lady may have been fraudulent and she is getting much, much more than she bargained for. That an intended fraudulent little act has actually conjured up a spirit and given her insight into who Saul is. Second thing that seems to be clear here is that whatever this is, it speaks truthfully, just as Samuel would speak if it were Samuel. 
These are Samuel's words. He's quoting Samuel's prophecies about Saul and David with truthful precision. And the prediction about Saul's death the next day, as we'll see, it comes true. So this spirit speaks truth. And the Bible presents this spirit to us as Samuel. And I don't know how this works. And I know this creates all kinds of problems with can you really talk to dead people and things like that. There are occurrences in the New Testament where Moses and Elijah come back on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Very different setting. But still they are back there. Their spirits are back there in some way. Um, But the Bible is presenting this in the clearest fashion as a conversation with Samuel. The most important thing, though, I think, is that what is going on here is contrary to God's will. Saul is way out of bounds here. Um, Back in the book of Leviticus, it says very clearly, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am Yahweh, your God. And again, the next chapter God says, I will set my face against the person who turns to medium and spiritist to prostitute himself by following them, and I will cut him off from his people. The point here is not to teach us about seances and witches and mediums and spiritual guides, although we can learn a few things from that. That's not the point. The point is to show us how far a man's fear can push him outside the revealed will of God for his life. Here we have Saul, whose fear of the Philistines has taken him to a point where he is doing a thing that is expressly forbidden by God, that he has expressly forbidden as king for anyone else to participate in. And again, in Saul's mind, God is not present. He is pushed to the margins and maybe beyond. Your fear will take you places you do not want to go if you let it dominate the landscape of your life and push God away from the center and make him small. And through these men's negative examples, God in his kindness this morning is inviting us to cast our cares on him, knowing that he cares about us. David himself put it this way, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, God in the center. The prophet Isaiah says it beautifully. He says, so do not fear, as he speaks for God, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, for I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do not be afraid. O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Saul and David were pushed places they never dreamed they'd go by their fears, specifically by the fear of death. That's the big one. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ came. One of the reasons he came was to live a perfect life and to die on the cross and be raised from the dead to set us free from the fear of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This morning, by his kindness, through these kind of crazy stories, God is extending to you an invitation to place your trust in Jesus as your sin bearer, as your savior, so that you won't have to fear death anymore and let it drive and dominate the decisions you make about your life. But you can rest that Jesus, who did raise from the dead, has also made sure your own resurrection from the dead if you will place your trust in him. And I want to pray for us as the worship team comes now for our closing time of response. Let's pray. Lord, um, in your kindness, this morning you have poked us in the places that we are afraid. Maybe it's just a little worry or a little anxiety or maybe it's one of these life-dominating, won't-go-near-something kind of fears that keeps us from doing that which you have called us to do. Lord, I ask that you would show us mercy now and allow us to turn towards you and trust you so that we would say with David on his best day, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O God. And I know it's likely this morning that there are some here who have never, never taken that critical step of trusting your son Jesus to be their savior, believing that his death on the cross frees them from sin. His resurrection secures their own resurrection in your wonderful heaven with you forever. And I pray right now that you'd hear their prayers. They acknowledge that they've sinned and that they need somebody to bear their sin so they don't have to for all eternity. God, extend that grace and mercy. Extend faith right now to those who ask for it. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. If you'll stand and sing our closing response, and if you'd like someone to pray with you about trusting God with your fears, if you'll just make your way to the front, one of our leaders will just come alongside and ask how they can pray for you, and they'll pray for great faith for you in whatever it is that you're wrestling with. So let's worship God.